David Spada is a successful attorney whose dream was to become a sports talk show host. Elliot Harris is a Chicago sports columnist who wanted to expand his media presence. In the next hour, they combine their talents and love of sports and women by interviewing former professional athletes and lovely ladies on sports and torts. But keeping the boys out of trouble isn't always easy because when David and Elliot are together, they have more fun than should be legal. Welcome to another edition of Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com with David Spada and Elliot Harris. I am Elliot Harris, and we have a great show today. David lined up legendary broadcaster Keith Jackson. When Keith asked him how long uh, he expected to be interviewed, David said about 20 minutes, and about an hour later, we were finished talking with Keith Jackson. Here is part one with Keith Jackson. How did you get into broadcasting? Oh, I was laying around on a hospital ship in China and, and turned my ankle around playing baseball. And I went down and auditioned for Armed Forces Radio Service and uh, it stayed alive for a while and eventually did a little bit of it. And then I got out and went to school at Washington State College back in those days in 1950. And uh, eventually wandered into the legend of Edward R. Morrow, and uh, I sat there in the same chair he did and sort of liked it and started uh, doing radio programs on the 5,000-watt college station that had been on the air since 1928 and produced a lot of good people. And so I gave up a double major of police and political science and possibility of a career in the Marines and became a broadcaster. Now, how does a guy who grew up in Georgia end up going to college in the Northwest? Well, I did four years, a little over four years in the Marine Corps, a goodly piece of it in China. And uh, they had the, the, uh, the subjects I wanted to study. And it was one of the few schools in the country that would let you take a double major in police and political science. And August Balmer had just started uh, the police science programs out at Berkeley in California, UC Berkeley, and uh, and Washington State uh, was going right along with it. And it seemed to, it felt good. Five of us went, and uh, four of us graduated from there. I'm only 42, but I heard about Edward Murrow. What was it like to work with him? I never worked with him. He's long since gone. Uh, Ed Morrow came from uh, out of history, and his place in history is that uh, if you can be in the right place at the right time during a war, he was. He was in London, and he had this great voice. He came out of Colfax, Washington, and uh, he had uh, a, a voice that resounded echoed off every corner in the room, I think, when he did a broadcast. He, he was also very bright, very opinionated, and uh, very seldom uh, wrong. And uh, he he went on through, uh, carved uh, a, a historic career. He went through that McCarthy thing and all of that other stuff, and uh, is, is absolutely a legend in broadcast news. Great voice. Your your grandpa, grandparents would remember it, and that voice had come through at 
This is London. Yeah. And you yeah. couldn't mistake who it was. Well, those were the days when it, it seemed that the CBS had a, a core of radio broadcasters, of Walter Cronkite among them, and Eric Severide, and on and on, who were just f- phenomenal, for lack of a better adjective. And uh, they made the transition from radio, many of them, to television. And... Uh, which is where some of us got got to know the likes of a Walter Cronkite or an Edward R. Murrow or Eric Severide or, or some of the others. It, it, they were able to, to to take the one craft of radio and and transform it into this relatively new technology of television. Well, uh, there's several reasons for that. Uh, I think people who uh, really are in in line for a career in journalism as such, uh, profit from having been in radio. I think everybody should have to do some radio instead of just walking off uh, uh, the campus and and going straight into broadcasting and thinking that uh, they've got a grip on things. I happen to think you have to learn to write before you can talk. Myself, I, I think that's the greatest. That's where you build your vocabulary. That's where you, uh, that's where you learn to turn a phrase. And uh, like it's been said many times before, if you can turn a phrase and make it interesting enough, even if they don't know what you're talking about, if they like what you said, they'll look it up. No question about that. Now, when you called a, a radio play-by-play for Stanford and Washington State. In 52, was that your first play-by-play experience? It was my first uh, college football broadcast. <laughs> I'd done I've, a lot I've, of high school stuff. But, uh, I've always marveled at people who are able to do the radio play-by-play. Are, are you born with a certain gene that enables you to describe what's going on in the field well, I was born a slow walking, slow talking Southern boy. I don't, uh, <laughs> but I had, um, I had that in my soul from, I guess, the day I was born. And it's a true story that when I was about 10 years old, my, my mother was a registered nurse and was oftentimes away during much of the day at the hospital. And, and my, I lived uh, more with my grandmother, and uh, she had a, a small farm down there in West Georgia, and that's that's where I lived and worked. And uh, my grandmother said to her mom as she came in uh, that night that you better go talk to your son because he's out there in the field working and talking to himself <laughs> all day long. And uh, she did. She came in and quizzed about it, I guess. Uh, I don't remember it vividly. And uh, and as the legend goes, and you can say almost anything you want, I guess, in the legend, but uh, she said, wanted to know what, what this talking business was out there in the field by myself. And I said, that's not talking business. I'm calling football games <laughs> and baseball games. And I was. See, back in those days when I grew up, I rode a horse to high school. Horse, I broke myself. Uh, I, I did all kind of bucolic things that that most people don't know about these days. And um, and uh, you uh, 
you had to find a way to amuse yourself because you spent a lot of time by yourself. Mm-hmm. And um, I love to write. I, there's still some scribblings around somewhere, I suppose, in somebody's trunk. But when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, I was writing stories. And um, it was just in me. We're all made to do something, and uh, uh, the, the best part of life can come if you can find your where you fit best. And fortunately, I found it. How did you end up covering an event in the Soviet Union in the late 50s? Well, I was working at uh, Channel 4 in Seattle, KOMO television and radio, and uh, doing Pacific Coast League baseball, Seattle University basketball, Husky football, and... Um, and news, could have our news every night on television. And uh, the uh, University of Washington got caught in the football slush fund. Businessmen and alumni downtown had put together a pretty good-sized fund, and it was some 25 or 30 years later that Hugh McElhaney finally admitted one night uh, on live television that he took a pay cut to go to the 49ers. So uh, you, uh, there was a, there was a hell, big hullabaloo about it. Uh, the NCAA came down like a fallen wall on them and penalized the entire university's athletic programs. And the rowing stewards who owned the building where the crew worked and, and uh, Shell House and what have you, and that land, they were terribly indignant that they were included in the penalty and told the NCAA to go to hell in a handbasket, and they went in their pockets and raised a bunch of money and sent the crew, which was a very good crew that year, um, they sent them to Henley. The Henley Royal Regatta, of course, is one of the premier sports events. It was then, and I presume still is, uh, in uh, the old country. There's about a 2,500-meter straight stretch of the Thames River, uh, just uh, a little bit outside of that Henley-on-Thames community. And it's one of the big fashion shows of the summertime. And so the Huskies were sent over there by the uh, rolling stewards uh, as a reward for having had an undefeated season. And they went, I went. I talked the boss into uh, letting the cameraman hired Romali and I go. And uh, then uh, the the two newspapers jumped in with their two editors, Royal Brougham and George Myers, and we all went to Henley on Thames. And they rode the Russians in the final, the the, uh, the eight eight oared boats and uh, the Soviets, and the Soviets beat the tar out of them. I mean, there was just open water, and it was conducted in a howling thunderstorm, very dramatic. And I had the privilege uh, then, uh, speaking of uh, picking up information along your path of life, uh, I worked with John Snag, who was was the man in all of England back in those days. And uh, John was out in the boat uh, half-drowning in the thunderstorm and saying, by God, I made a poor decision on this day. <laughs> but um, anyway, the Russian, uh, the Soviets then uh, beat the Huskies pretty badly. And everybody's down in the mouth and what have you. But we broadcasted on radio, and uh, you didn't fiddle around with television because it wasn't available back in those days. And uh, it was 55, I guess it was. And 
Then one, uh, two days later, there was a young fellow with a blue serge suit standing uh, four feet from Al Ulbrichson, the Husky rowing coach, and he said he introduced himself as uh, representing the cultural exchange program that had been an ongoing conversation between the United States and the Soviet Union, in which they would uh, swap things. And he said to Al, uh, well, Coach, would you like another shot at the Soviets? We'd be happy to have you go to to uh, the Soviet Union as the first American athletes to participate in our cultural exchange program. And Al almost uh, fell in the river. He was so surprised <laughs> to get that invitation and, and was so eager to accept it. So here I'm standing about 40 feet from him, eavesdropping on that conversation, and I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to shirt tail him and go with him, with Howard, the cameraman. And uh, the only in-tourist office, this is a wonderful story, but it goes on forever, the only in-tourist office in the western part of the world was in London, and it was run by one woman, one lady, and a very jolly, happy kind of a person, and... Uh, we, she loved Wheeler's Fish House, and I probably spent, I don't know, $1,000 buying her martinis and fish, and, and uh, the other guys pitched in when I got tired. And uh, finally one day she called and, uh, at the um, house where we were staying, out at Headley, and uh, she said, if you can bring me $35 U.S. cash money per day per person, I'll get you a visa. So we were able to scrounge up the money. The folks in Seattle kind of hung and hawed a little bit before they coughed up quite a bit of money. But the, they did it because by that time it had become quite a story out in the West. And uh, sure enough, we went there and went through all kinds of, uh, of travail and troubles. Irving R. Levine was a wonderful help to us. Irving was the NBC correspondent. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that time, and we were an NBC radio and television station in Seattle at that time. And uh, finally, we we got permission uh, to do it. But you, you're going to love you got. I got to tell you this part of the story that we went out to the Kim Kenska Reservoir, having made all the uh, arrangements for broadcast. And um, there was a lady who ran the Moscow Radio at the time too. And we'd go out there with a professor from the university uh, who was our guide and and, uh, and translator. And we'd go to the main gate, and there are two ladies, each with a rifle on their shoulder and pistol on their hip and a very bad attitude toward Americans. <laughs> no way in tarnation were we going to get inside that reservoir. Nyet, 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 everywhere you turn. And Yuri Kolosov, who was our uh, translator, kept saying, we need paper, we need a paper with a stamp. And this little dance goes on for a whole day and into the next day, and still nothing but nyet. And the foreign ministry guy wasn't helping us a damn bit. He he was trying to hide from it because he was afraid he was going to get in trouble. And uh, finally, Howard Romaley, bless his heart, who's now passed, uh, Howard reached into his wallet, and he comes out 
with a Seattle police and fire department press card which had a notary public on it and showed it to the woman and she opened the gate. <laughs> That's how we got in. <laughs> with a Seattle police and fire department press card with a notary public stamp. They went out there the next day and did a half-hour broadcast, and they timed us right to the minute. And the Huskies only needed about 27 minutes to row the Soviets dead in their seat, whipped them right in their backyard, and life was good. Amazing. That's a long, uh, drawn-out thing, but still, it was filled with anticipation, and we were. That was also the week. If you wonder why there was such keen interest in that part of the world, that was the time when Marines were landing, U.S. Marines were landing in Lebanon. The Brits were sinking ships in the Suez Canal, and it was pretty dicey-looking time. Yeah. But um, as far as we were concerned, uh, we won everything when the kids went out there and, and whacked the Soviets in their backyard. So how does a guy in the Pacific Northwest become a national broadcaster? You know, it seems like, from my recollection, it was usually some guy who was on a TV station in New York and ends up doing national broadcasts. Oh, that's true. Yeah, if you weren't in New York, you're climbing a slick tree. And uh, Seattle, if you know your geography, is, is is isolated from the rest of the country because of the mountain range. First you got the Rockies, and then you got uh, uh, the Cascades. And they're, and they're formidable opponents when you're moving goods and, and commerce and what have you. But uh, how do you get there? I don't know. I guess be good enough. That's the only answer I can give you. We were we got a goodly bit of acclaim from the Soviet adventure, and uh, by then uh, I was doing news and continued to do news as well as sports. And uh, we did several things that were carried on uh, on NBC, and uh, people saw them. And then one day uh, the call came from Los Angeles. How would you like to come down to Los Angeles and be ready to do a radio news program every night? And uh, and you can freelance sports when you have time. And uh, so I did. Durianne, my wife of 61 years, we talked a long time about it and uh, decided uh, that if we were going to ever do it, it was time. And so we moved. And you were covering the AFL, which was the new league, the NFL's opponent. What was that like? That was about like the USFL. I did that too. It, uh, well, it was pretty clear that um, there were boards with uh, pockets full of money scattered amongst the, the tribes, and um, they were tired of this same little group of people making a lot of money with professional sports. And, and eventually there came that that seed, uh, the, the desire to, to join the chase. And uh, that's how the AFL came along and led by Lamar Hunt and a few people like that. And they, you know, they knew what they were doing too. And caught on and uh, you have what you have now. 
Now you've done a wide variety of sports. I'm I'm curious what it was like to have been at the Munich Olympics in 1972. Oh, heartbreaking, uh, sickening, and uh, even though I'd run around over a good piece of the world by that time and realized uh, it it wasn't uh, overwhelmed with common sense, uh, no part of it. Uh, it was just it was just mind boggling. It was hard to understand why this could happen. Because if it not happened, I submit that that would have gone down as one of the great Olympics of all time. I mean, Gemütlichkeit was rampant. Everybody was happy. Everything was going perfectly, just like the Germans planned it, and on and on and on. But uh, suddenly uh, there was this dreadful thing. But the more you think about it and the more you look at it and study why this might have happened, they didn't think it up by themselves. Do you remember Mexico? Yeah. What happened in Mexico? In Mexico City with uh, the Black Power with Tommy Smith. The Black and Power. That was an American problem that was taken by Americans to Mexico City and put smack dab in Mexico, Mexico's Olympic Games and uh, uninvited. And then suddenly, bingo, here across the world comes the idea that that's a great stage to perform on, boys. Let's get ready for 72. Yeah. Because Mexico was in 68. Oh, you're absolutely right. Was there a, a football game that stood out that you think was the best one you ever covered? Yeah, several good ones. Uh, it's it's very difficult and, and and really kind of silly to try to say this was the best one. But I'll make a tip. Uh, the one I've always cited was the 1967 USC-UCLA game in the Coliseum with the national championship, the conference championship, the Rose Bowl, and the Heisman Trophy all on the line. The Trojans won the championships, and Gary Beban of UCLA won the Heisman, and it was 21 to 20. Pretty good stuff. Not bad. And when you were doing college football, when ABC was broadcasting a game, that was like the, pretty much the game to watch as opposed to nowadays when it seems like there's 20 or 30 games on any given Saturday. When ABC came to a college town, that somehow validated that school or that fan base. And it, it it's tough to describe to people nowadays what that was like 30 or 40 years ago. But, uh, you know, Here's Keith Jackson coming to Columbia, Missouri, or wherever it might be, or you know, Austin, Texas. And uh, well, you know, I never felt, I never, never pursued it, nor did I ever feel that I was the bell cow, because we had an awful lot of very talented young people and some middle-aged folks like me who uh, worked awfully hard to make that worthy of the attention that it was getting. And we knew that if we continued to do it well, that uh, other folks would have a hard time uh, taking it away from us. And uh, they did. 
but they eventually got there and uh, and most of us uh most of us are no longer ABC is gone you know ABC sports is gone right no it's ESPN I mean growing up being 42 I remember college football was ABC Saturday afternoons with Keith Jackson and then mm-hmm. on Monday nights it was Monday night football with Howard Cosell well, that's right yep but you guys were like polar opposites I mean you were the ultimate professional where Howard Cosell kind of he was a professional, but he always basically expressed his opinion. He wasn't afraid to do it. Well, <laughs> he was he, he was a bona fide, and I guess justified in hindsight, uh, uh, special kind of dude wandering around the landscape and getting away with things that that uh, probably nobody else could. And uh, he was uh, <coughs> he was Rune Arledge's. Uh, he, he left the road in front of a lot of things that Rune wanted to do, and uh, and the best thing probably that ever happened uh, for Howard was when they started throwing bricks at the television sets in the bar in Denver. <laughs> I mean, that kind of nonsense just gets you more attention in the media. Well, and I, I think a lot of guys were grumbling and griping about him and all of that kind of stuff, but... Uh, he gave them. He even gave the the media more uh, reason to write stories about him than any man I've ever seen. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it, it seems I like him. I had a guy had a yeah. ball with him. I had more. I had a ton of fun working eighteen years with her. Because I mean, the standard was the broadcasters should not make themselves part of the story. And Howard, basically, he was part of the news. Well, of course, that was the plan. Howard's the only man I've ever known that could do a 15-minute memory piece about a guy who just died who he didn't know. (laughs) That's part one of our interview with Keith Jackson. David Spada and I will be back with part two on TalkZone.com after this brief break. (laughs) 